This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 302 of the program. Today is Friday, August 13th, and before we get started, I want to take some time to thank all of the folks who make this show possible. All of our newest Patreon, PayPal, YouTube, and Twitch subscribers, all of which who either sign up for the very first time to support us monetarily this week or increase the monthly pledge that they were already giving us, and that includes Daryl Phillips, H. Ellis, Hildebeast, Jane Conlon, Jessica Bad, Karina Winman, Rodin Jones, Subhan Faruqi, and The Captivating Chameleon. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you would also like to support the show, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com slash support, patreon.com forward slash humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. We've got a great show for you planned today. We'll discuss the IPCC's new report on climate change, along with the president's refusal to address it in a meaningful way. And we'll talk about the greenwashing of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Also, more children than ever are getting infected with COVID-19 as the Delta variant spreads throughout the United States. And also, anti-vax mom bloggers are licking things in grocery stores to disprove COVID-19. We've reached that stage of the pandemic, apparently. Also on this episode, Nina Turner hints at a 2022 run. Andrew Cuomo finally resigns. Joe Rogan's fear-mongering about vaccines backfires when the author of a study he cited came out to condemn the disinformation that he's spreading. H3's Ethan Klein easily disproves so-called freedom arguments made by anti-vaxxers like Joe Rogan. And finally, Bill Burr slams Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for being the biggest COVID idiot in the country. That's what we've got on the agenda for today's episode. Hopefully you will enjoy what I have in store for you. Let's get right to it, folks. Well, the IPCC just released a new report on global anthropogenic climate change, and the only thing that's possibly more horrifying to me than the details of this report is the widespread ambivalence that I'm expecting in response to this report. I just feel like people don't care about climate change. In a couple of days, you know, the uh, worries about this article will be forgotten and the news will move on. And even if people cared about climate change... Uh, I, I think that it still wouldn't necessarily matter because our lawmakers just haven't addressed this issue with the urgency needed to stop catastrophic levels of climate change, assuming they've addressed this at all. And what this report spells out essentially is doom for the future of the human race, if there's even going to be a future for the human race at all. Yes, it's that bad. So I know that people don't really seem interested in any climate-related stories. But regardless, um, this isn't just your future that we're talking about. This is the present. Climate change is already here, and it's no longer this theoretical concept of what might happen hundreds of years from now. It's happening in your lifetime, like it or not now. That's what this report says. So there's a couple of key takeaways here that I want to address first and foremost before we get to the general summary of the report by Common Dreams. Uh, basically, they conclude that at this point in time, it is undeniable that climate change is anthropogenic. That means it's caused by human activity. They are unequivocal. They are clear in stating this. Second of all, they explain that climate change at this point in time it's inevitable. 
it's already here and we're going to pass multiple tipping points probably mid-century so the goal was to stop a rise in the global temperature to uh, 1.5 and uh, 2 degrees celsius uh that's gonna happen like it or not like even if we do everything in our power now to stop that we're already going to pass that tipping point and by the end of the century we may hit 4.4 degrees celsius uh you know compared to pre-industrial levels so like it or not we're fucked and the un secretary general is describing the findings of this report as a code red for humanity which i think is appropriate considering we're talking about entire countries being underwater within this century and furthermore, climate change is occurring faster than scientists had uh, previously anticipated. But I mean, if what may or may not happen towards the end of the century doesn't give you the wake-up call that you need, we'll talk about what's expected to happen in the next couple of decades in your lifetime, if you're a millennial or a Zoomer. But first, I want to give you a general breakdown of what's in this report. So as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams explains, a panel of leading scientists convened by the United Nations issued a comprehensive report Monday that contains a stark warning for humanity. The climate crisis is here. Some of its most destructive consequences are now inevitable, and only massive and speedy reductions in greenhouse gas emissions can limit the coming disaster. Assembled by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a team of more than 200 scientists the new report represents a sweeping analysis of thousands of studies published over the past eight years as people the world over have suffered record-shattering temperatures and deadly extreme weather from catastrophic wildfires to monsoon rains to extreme drought. The result of the scientists' work is a startling assessment of the extent to which human activity, particularly the burning of fossil fuels, has altered the climate, producing unprecedented planetary warming, glacial melting, sea level rise, and other changes that are wreaking havoc in every region of the globe, wiping out entire towns, imperiling biodiverse ecosystems such as the Great Barrier Reef and the Amazon rainforest, and endangering densely populated swaths of the world. Many of the changes observed in the climate are unprecedented in thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, and some of the changes already set in motion, such as continued sea level rise, are irreversible over hundreds to thousands of years, reads the report, which was approved by 195 member nations of the IPCC. Now, what the report does is it lays out five different models for climate change and what we can expect. The issue, however, is that even in the most charitable model to humanity, even in the most rosy picture, some things are just inevitable. There will be catastrophic levels of climate change even if we do everything that we need to do right now. For example, the global sea level is going to continue to rise. It already rose 8 inches over the last 100 plus years. And if it continues, or I should say, when it continues, in the next couple of decades, we're going to see a lot of devastation. This isn't something that's in the distant, distant future. This is something that millennials and Zoomers will see in their lifetimes. Now, before the IPCC report was released, the YouTube channel ASAP Science did a really great video explaining what we can expect when it comes to climate change in the next 20 to 30 years. So in 30 years, cities that house almost 200 million people will be underwater. Many cities will be underwater. This includes Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, Alexandria in Egypt, Mumbai in India. And I want to be clear, we're not talking about the end of the century. We're talking about by 2050. You're going to be alive to see this. You're going to be alive to see Mumbai be underwater. Also, portions of Jakarta in Indonesia will be submerged. Uh, by 2100, if, you know, if these distant cities that are out of sight and out of mind doesn't scare you 
well, your grandchildren are going to see millions of people have to flee Miami because that's going to be underwater by 2100. New Orleans may be underwater by 2100. And on top of that, cities that are lucky enough to not be submerged underwater entirely due to a global increase in the sea level, well, they still might be uninhabitable due to fatally high temperatures. I'm talking about Dubai. I'm talking about Abu Dhabi, Shanghai, China. And scientists can basically just tell us point blank what will happen, but there's no way they can possibly anticipate the political ramifications of climate change. But I can tell you that it's not going to be great. If we see geopolitical rivals that are already, you know, um, adversaries, China and India, if we're going to see them both deal with massive refugee crises as a result of global climate change, well, of course, that's going to lead to further strain in their tensions, perhaps more wars. Um, if people around the globe are having to migrate in large numbers due to the area that they live in being uninhabitable, large portions of the Middle East by 2100, this is going to fuel a global refugee crisis that will undeniably lead to anti-immigration rhetoric. Uh, fascism will be on the rise. More politically extreme ideologies will become popular as a result of this. Water will become the primary resource that wars are fought over as opposed to oil. And on top of that, climate change is undoubtedly going to disrupt the global food supply and lead to nationwide shortages which means that we're going to see hoarding and panic buying become common phenomenons and not just something that we see occasionally as a result of you know an unprecedented pandemic and again i want to be really clear that this is something that you have to look forward to in your lifetime if you're a millennial or you're a zoomer by the time we're as old as the politicians that are in power right now who are choosing not to act this is what we can expect. And if you think that all of this is really unlikely, take a look at the wildfires that are happening in Greece or the wildfires that are an annual occurrence in the Pacific Northwest. We just had a mass casualty heat wave in the Pacific Northwest where we had record-breaking heat waves. It's not just that climate change is going to get really bad in the, in the future. It's already bad. But what the IPCC report ultimately is telling us is that what we have left in our control is how bad we're going to allow it to be. It's going to be bad. It's going to be catastrophic. So if you don't care now, you're going to have to care very, very shortly. But how bad are we as a species going to allow it to become? Unfortunately, the pessimist in me says we're going to let it get really bad. And, you know, we're not going to pay attention until... We're forced to pay attention, right? As long as we have these distractions, as long as we can entertain ourselves with, you know, stories that are uh, about celebrities and, and drama, then we'll try to tune out climate change. But climate change is knocking on our doors and it's getting harder and harder to ignore. So I don't know what's left to say. The future is very, very bleak. And, you know, this is no longer some distant thing where you know we have to feel sorry for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren if you're alive today if you're old enough to watch this video if you're a millennial if you're a zoomer you get to look forward to absolute misery and chaos in 20 and 30 years like it's already bad now it's gonna get a lot worse so if we choose to act even if we do everything in our power to stop climate change. It's still not going to be enough. Climate change will 
be catastrophic. But minimizing the destruction is still in our control. The only question is whether or not we're going to take it seriously. And the answer is probably no. According to the IPCC's new report on global anthropogenic climate change, climate change is going to be catastrophic and that's inevitable. It's unavoidable at this point. But what we are capable of controlling is how bad it gets. We can still mitigate the worst of what climate change will bring us to an extent, but we still have to equip ourselves with the capability of adapting. So it's really important that we have leaders in power currently that, one, acknowledge the severity of anthropogenic climate change, and two, actually respond to it with the urgency that is necessary to stop more catastrophic levels of climate change than is already upon us. But unfortunately, individuals like Joe Biden will talk a big game to an extent, but when it comes to their actions, essentially, it's indistinguishable from the likes of actual climate change deniers. So this is discussed by Kate Arnoff in a fantastic article for The New Republic, where she explains that Joe Biden is effectively a climate denier at this point, and he is engaging in what is the new climate denial, which is the soft denialism, a denial of the seriousness of climate change. So she writes, the Biden administration is now on track to approve more oil and gas drilling on public lands, activity that accounts for a quarter of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions than any administration since George W. Bush. Climate envoy John Kerry has balked at the idea of committing the U.S. to a coal phase-out. Politicians who call themselves climate hawks are still going out of their way to make clear that there's a vibrant future ahead for the companies that funded climate denial whose business model remains built around burning up and extracting as many fossil fuels as possible. Administration officials, meanwhile, have talked repeatedly about the need to cap warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius. This is climate denial. These politicians don't dispute that the climate is changing, but they are absolutely in denial about what curbing it would entail. Rhetorically, the administration has emphasized electric vehicles, in particular, as being at the core of its climate agenda. With the right incentives, the thinking goes... The U.S. can transform a historically important sector into an engine of green job creation and decarbonization. So what is the White House doing to make good on its promise of sparking an electric vehicle revolution? Last week, the White House announced that it had reached a non-binding deal with the country's biggest automakers that half of their new vehicles would be electric, plug-in hybrid, or hydrogen electric by 2030. That target, in fact, falls short of what car companies themselves previously pledged, and the funding for the goal is pretty meager, too. Electric vehicles and buses only get $7.5 billion each in the bipartisan infrastructure plan to be parceled out over 10 years in the form of incentives rather than direct spending. There might be $20 billion more over a decade for electric vehicle rebates in the reconciliation package advanced on Monday, but not much else. The American automobile industry, specifically Ford and GM, have known for over half a century about the threat their products posed to the habitability of the planet. They responded by funding climate denial. The Biden administration is offering these companies free advertising and voluntary incentives to change course. That isn't treating climate change as a crisis so much as a business opportunity for its favorite sectors. And Kate's overarching point is that our planet is going into new uncharted territory and we will be experiencing unprecedented changes to the environment due to climate change that is man-made. But yet, in spite of all of this, all of these details and the evidence that we're aware of, well, our politics hasn't changed. It hasn't adapted to meet 
what is necessary to stop not just like catastrophic climate change because that's inevitable but uh worse than catastrophic levels of climate change i mean climate change is already here and we need to at least consider adapting what we're going to do to establish an infrastructure needed to take in the refugees as a result of more cities around the globe either being submerged in water as ocean levels rise or being uninhabitable because they're just catastrophically hot i just don't i just don't think that there is any way out of this mess short of an overthrowing of global capitalism and i know that that sounds really really hyperbolic and that's basically a lost cause because it ain't gonna happen but i mean our lawmakers they talk about how climate change is essential and they'll tweet out the ipcc but yet there's just there's not enough energy that suggests that they're serious about it like this is a hair on fire sky is falling moment and they're not treating it as such and so it's great to have people in power like Joe Biden who at least don't deny the reality of anthropogenic climate change like Donald Trump. But if his actions are going to be no different or insufficient, then there's no difference. Young people aren't going to be encouraged to come out and vote for Democrats who purport to take climate change seriously if they're not actually going to stop climate change from being you know, a greater threat to civilization than it already will be. So... It's, it's really frustrating. And part of this, I, I mean, I hate to blame voters, but if you voted for Joe Biden over Bernie Sanders in the primary when we had an opportunity to elect someone who actually took this seriously, you know, uh, you, you have yourself to thank for basically subjecting future generations to an apocalyptic hellscape. All the liberals in the Democratic Party who chose to reject Bernie Sanders out of pettiness or just fear of the unknown, you have yourself to thank. And if you voted for Donald Trump, either in 2016 or 2020, you know, you uh, should never be able to uh, live this down, right? I, I encourage people to change. But if you voted for Donald Trump, you know, you, uh, you sacrificed crucial time that we didn't have all because you think that the Democrats are like too woke or something, or you don't like taxes because you, you're mistakenly, you know, uh, believing the bullshit about the Democratic Party and that they're far left. I mean, there's so much blame to go around. And ultimately, you know, it's on ourselves, it's on the lawmakers, it's on the, you know, uh, 100 corporations that emit the overwhelming majority of greenhouse gas emissions. But either way, at the end of the day, you know, no matter how much blame there is to uh, spread, it doesn't matter if we're all extinct at the end of the day. It doesn't matter. I mean, come 2100, come 2200, who knows if the species will even exist by then? I mean, sure, I, I think that we're not going to go extinct by 2200, obviously. I mean, I'm not going to be here to, to determine if we survive or not, but uh, you know, still, even if we survive, the amount of devastation that climate change is certainly going to cause at this point, I mean, we, we, ha we have to, um, we have to acknowledge that there are people that are to blame for this, you know, and the people to blame are still in power and the people who put them in power are still voting to put them in power and they're to blame for this too.
I think there's a lot of blame to go around. And I think that people should feel guilty because guilt should be a catalyst for change. If you feel guilty, hopefully you'll feel inclined to stop doing bad things. Stop electing politicians who don't give a fuck about future generations. Stop electing politicians who claim to care about climate change, but then do nothing when they get in office. Like, if you feel guilty, make that be the spark that, you know, mobilizes or, or encourages you to mobilize and get involved and stop, you know... Um, Stop doing dumb things that, you know, jeopardize the future of the species. And I'm just rambling, but I mean, it's climate change, you know, so feeling this existential doom is important because if people don't take climate change seriously and at least feel somewhat worried or guilty, feel something, then nothing will ever change. So to feel anything at this point, in my opinion, is a step in the right direction because if we can get people to actually pay attention and stop feeling completely apathetic about climate change then maybe just maybe we can start to take action to you know equip ourselves with the capability of surviving this absolute catastrophe that is now inevitable if you're one of the many people who still feels really disappointed and demoralized and even possibly depressed as a result of nina turner's defeat to Chantel brown Look, you are not alone, first of all, but second of all, I think that this piece of news, what Nina Turner may be hinting at, might make you feel a little bit better. Now, there's no definitive way to say with certainty that she's definitely saying she's going to run for Congress in 2022. Having said that, though, if you listen to what she's saying, it seems very likely that she is hinting at another congressional run that she'll be starting shortly. Take a look. I just want to thank all of you. I just want to take this time and just thank you so much for all of your support. I want to thank Akron. You guys came through for sister. Thank you so very, very much. And we're just getting started. The mission is still the same. No matter what, the mission stays the same. And guess what? You know what I want you to know? I'm walking. I am in good spirits. I am going to take some time to decompress and spend a little time with my family and reset, kind of commune with God a little more. And baby, we coming out stronger than ever. So guess what? I am saying to you that I am going to make a, an announcement in September, probably mid-September, and I'm going to need you, okay? Because remember, I've always said that we're going to do great things together. I want you to know, keep that market on your calendar. I don't have a date, but I want you to say she said somewhere around mid-September. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sister Turner ain't deterred one bit, baby. <laughs> You know what kind of cloth I'm cut from, right. I hail from the Fannie Lou Hamer, That's right. uh, Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, Inez Emerson, my grandma, Fannie M. Lewis from the great city of Cleveland, Ohio, baby, I hail from many great heroes and sheroes in the African-American line, baby, won't stop, cannot stop, so again, Thank you so much, all of you who gave your time, your talent, and your treasure. I don't want anybody to be, I mean, we can be disappointed, Hill. I'm definitely disappointed, but I am not deterred. Can I get an amen? Look, that's Devil a sermon. Devil that's a sermon. <laughs> disappointed, but not deterred. Mm-mm, baby. No, it's too much great work. The mission, I want you to know, the mission remains the same. Look, there's no way of knowing for sure, but when she says things like, I'm going to be making an announcement probably mid-September, and I'm going to need you... That tells me that she's gearing up for another congressional run. And that is really, really encouraging to see. Because look, she was very close to defeating Chantel Brown. And if Cori Bush can lose to Lacey Clay, the incumbent Democrat, by 20 points in 2018, 
come back and defeat him just two years later, I think it's absolutely worthwhile for Nina Turner to try again. And the good news is that even if, you know, it may be more difficult to defeat Chantal Brown as an incumbent Democrat, because incumbents have the incumbency advantage, you know, it's not going to be like, the situation where this is a special election and turnout is especially low and you have all eyes on this one race which means that all of the super PACs are going to dedicate the additional time that they have in an off year to try to you know sabotage the progressive she has a great shot if she runs again right dmfi can no longer just focus all of their resources for the quarter on this one race there's going to be other progressives running across the country so they're going to have to apply their resources in a more thin way uh, on top of that if more people turn out to vote and support nina turner if there's if there's already a heightened awareness of an election taking place in 2022 Hopefully, this can increase the chances. I think that, you know, it's still going to be a tough race. It's not like, you know, her victory is going to be a foregone conclusion. I, I've been trying to emphasize this from the very beginning when she announced that she was running back in December. But I think that if she tried again, there's a big enough chance to where it would be worthwhile to dedicate all of that time and energy into fighting for her. So this time, if we have a second chance, if she really is going to run again, if that's what the announcement is, which seems very likely, don't, please, please, please don't sit this one out. Get involved. Understand that these races are very difficult. Understand that she needs all hands on deck. And if you can, volunteer for Nina Turner. But again, I'm not going to say all of that before it's official. She could be hinting at something entirely different. But if we have a second chance here... I'm going to make the best of it. But for now, I really hope that she does take some time off because running a congressional campaign is absolutely exhausting. And uh, we'll, we'll wait and see. I'll, I'll, you know, announce what she says or I'll report on what she announces mid-September. But hopefully it's another congressional run. If not, then I support her in any endeavor that she chooses to pursue. So I don't have kids. I'm not a parent, but I don't have to have kids to acknowledge how frustrating it must be to raise your kids in the middle of a pandemic. Like I'm sure that when school got out for the summer, you were hoping that come fall, you'd be able to send your kids back to school in an environment that was more normal, you know, that uh, resembled pre-pandemic life where masks and social distancing weren't something that was even considered. But unfortunately, things changed and we have to be able to adapt. Delta is here and there is a correlation between the prominence of Delta and a lot more kids getting infected. A lot of evidence suggests that kids are more likely to be infected with this variant than the original COVID-19 strain. And we can't just pretend as if that isn't actually the case. I mean, sure, we need more evidence, but we can't pretend as if that isn't the case because we desperately want things to return to normal. If you're under 12, you're not eligible to be vaccinated. So for you to be forced to resume in-person learning when that's definitely not the responsible thing to do would be a mistake. But unfortunately, a lot of states are hesitant to, you know, um, implement new lockdown measures and any measures related to school because it's just not politically convenient to do something like that but then you have some states like florida that go out of their way to put kids in even more danger than they're all than they will already be in right so ron DeSantis banned mask mandates so if a school district wants to take additional measures to protect children well they may lose funding if they institute a mask mandate so it's just the situation in the united states it is incredibly incredibly sad and frustrating because we've politicized the pandemic and people are sick of it 
But I, I'm sorry, regardless if you're sick of it, regardless of how politically inconvenient it may be for lawmakers to do what's right, we shouldn't be gambling with the lives of children. We shouldn't be using kids as guinea pigs, given what we know so far about the Delta variant. So, I want to read to you a story that should, in theory, make people more inclined to want to take it seriously because I think that protecting kids who are the most vulnerable in society should be a priority for everyone. And if you don't take this seriously, then kids' lives may be at risk. So, this story is from Christian Spencer of The Hill, who reports two of the most infectious states with the COVID-19 Delta variant, Louisiana and Florida, are seeing increased numbers of sick children. It is unclear why more children are sick due to the Delta variant outbreak, but medical experts believe the surges in pediatric cases are due to the variant's hypertransmissibility, how easy it is for the virus to circulate in a population that is unvaccinated. Young children are not eligible to get the vaccine. In New Orleans, 20 children in two weeks came down with severe cases of the Delta variant, NBC News reported, and it appears it was more contagious than the previous outbreak. I've never seen anything like it, said Mark Klein, physician-in-chief at Children's Hospital in New Orleans to NBC News. We are seeing children fall ill that we just simply didn't see in the first year of the pandemic before the Delta variant came along. The CDC is trying to determine whether the Delta variant can be a more severe disease in children, Rochelle Walensky, the CDC's director, said during a briefing Thursday. Walensky noted that researching the correlation between increased children's cases and relaxed restrictions makes matters more complicated, saying the mitigation strategies that were used last summer, even in the winter, have not been employed in many of these areas that we are having surges right now. From the beginning of the pandemic, more than 4.1 million children have been diagnosed with COVID-19, making up 14.3% of all cases. Now, children with COVID-19 represent 19% in weekly reported cases from July 15th to July 29th, according to the latest data from the American Academy of Pediatrics. So it's currently the case that experts aren't able to say with certainty that more children are getting sick with COVID-19 because of the Delta variant. There could be other circumstances that's leading to more children getting sick. Having said that, though, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that it is indeed worthwhile to take this very seriously and at least act as if this is more transmissible among young people because more young people are getting sick. Yes, correlation doesn't necessarily equal causation, but we have enough evidence to take this as serious as it might be. And I just, I think that resuming in-person learning come fall very soon is a huge mistake. And again, we are using children as guinea pigs. We're essentially experimenting on them if we resume in-person learning. Throughout the duration of the pandemic, we have to make sure that we take it seriously. It doesn't matter that people have grown fatigued of lockdowns and mask mandates and they really just want their kids to grow up in a more normal environment like i get that instinct right we all feel it but facts don't care about your feelings now the pandemic is very very serious and until children are able to get vaccinated we can't just send them back to school and, and let them get sick risk them getting exposed to COVID-19 from their peers. With how transmissible the Delta variant is, with how severe this disease is, when we see cases of kids dealing with long-term COVID-19, I don't think this is something that we should be doing. So we shouldn't just condemn the governors like Ron DeSantis who go out of their way to put kids uh, at more of a risk. 
But even in the blue states who have handled COVID-19 fairly well up until this point, to send children back to school under these conditions is just reckless. And I don't think that we should use kids as a political football, even if we've politicized the pandemic to the point that we have. In-person learning is a horrible idea. And anyone who doesn't say that and see it right now is just fooling themselves. Throughout the course of the pandemic, Joe Rogan has essentially been a one-man misinformation machine, even going so far as to explicitly suggest that his young, impressionable viewers not get the COVID-19 vaccine that could end up saving their lives. Now, thankfully, after a lot of backlash, he walked back that comment, calling himself a moron. But after correctly identifying that he is indeed a moron, well, he still is spreading misinformation about the vaccines, downplaying the efficacy of the vaccines, bringing on crackpots to fearmonger about the side effects of the vaccines, and now what he's doing may be the worst yet in the clip that you're about to see, because he's going out of his way to suggest that the vaccines might actually make the pandemic and the virus of COVID-19 even more harmful. And I should add that he's getting paid very handsomely to spread this misinformation during a public health crisis. So what he's going to do is try to lie to you about the science of the COVID-19 vaccines by citing other scientific studies. So we'll see what he has to say, and then I'll tell you why he's wrong. There's legitimate articles. Jamie, I'll send this to you now. There's legitimate because doctors have been sending me these things. And, you know, this is neither pro nor con vaccine. I'm not, this is not a judgment statement. But imperfect vaccination can enhance the transmission of highly virulent pathogens. Right. So this is a scientific paper um, from 2015 that shows that if here's it said there's this one important quote vaccines that keep the host alive but still allow transmission. Oh. can thus allow virulent strains to circulate in a population. So vaccines that don't kill the virus, vaccines that allow people, like this is one of the things we're finding out about what they're calling breakthrough cases. Right. So people who are vaccinated can still get COVID and they can still transmit COVID. Mm -hmm. This recently happened at the Comedy Store. A vaccinated comedian gave COVID to like 12 different fucking people at the Comedy Store. Some of them vaccinated, some of them not. That situation where the vaccine just kind of protects you from serious damage, right. but d it protects you from really being like badly uh, hospitalized or death, but doesn't stop you from getting the virus, can possibly lead to more potent viruses. So these people that are saying, oh, it's these unvaccinated people that are responsible for the variants. Well, there's actually scientific papers that point to the very sort of environment that we're creating by having so many people vaccinated with a vaccine that doesn't kill off right. the virus. It actually can lead to more potent viruses. Try finding that story anywhere. You're not going to find that story anywhere, Joe, because it's not actually a story. 
that article that you cited but didn't read actually refers to an experiment conducted on chickens to determine if them being immunized against Merrick's disease would enhance the transmissibility of that virus in particular, not COVID-19. And he misrepresented that study so bad that one of the authors of the study had to come out and publicly denounce Joe Rogan citing his study in that mangled manner. He says, we're talking a very different virus and a very different vaccines. The details in biology really matter a lot. The chicken vaccines we worked with, the first generation vaccine, definitely reduced disease, severity, and death. But unlike the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, the chicken vaccine didn't stop transmission at all. And this is one of the key differences between what was being studied in Reed's paper and our current situation with the global pandemic. Those vaccinated chickens just kept churning out the virus for weeks and weeks and weeks. Again, this is a key difference. It's a very different virus from SARS-2. A key issue here is transmissibility. Evolution at the moment is all happening in the unvaccinated. That's where the majority of cases are. That's the majority of transmission. Every time a virus replicates, it can mutate. So the evolution is right now occurring in the body of people who are not vaccinated. Rogan is completely wrong trying to deduce anything else. Now, again, that was the author of the study that Joe Rogan cited, having to take time out of his day to explain why what Joe Rogan is saying here is completely wrong. Now, this author does address whether or not vaccines as it relates to COVID-19 can possibly make COVID-19 down the line more dangerous. And he's speculating here because he hasn't looked at that particular vaccine and virus. But here's what he has to say. Even though variants are more likely to emerge in unvaccinated people, a variant from a vaccinated person is still possible. Either way, the answer is vaccines. If a new variant emerges, we can get second generation vaccines, Reed accurately points out, as pharmaceutical companies are already developing boosters and second generation vaccines. There's tons of things we can do in the future. Right now, we need to vaccinate as much as possible. He pauses, I would be delighted, I have to say, to get to the point where the vast majority of the evolution that's going on is in vaccinated people because there's only vaccinated people around. If we get to that position in a year or something, we can keep a very good eye out on what evolution is happening. But right now, the problem is the unvaccinated. I'm going to read that last sentence again. But right now, the problem is the unvaccinated. Do you hear that, Joe Rogan? This is the author of the study that you cited on your program and misrepresented because one, you probably didn't read it. And two, even if you did read it, you wouldn't understand the implications of said study because you have absolutely no knowledge of this particular field. And you citing that study and using it to spread misinformation about the COVID-19 vaccines is dangerous. And that's what the author also calls out. He says, the study was tweeted a thousand times last night, according to our metrics, says Reed. I had a physician in England reach out to me on Friday, asking me to clarify because his patients are using my paper to argue against vaccination. Calling into question the effectiveness of vaccines was never the intention of his 2015 study. I am genuinely shocked. I've been doing work for 20 years now on how vaccines might drive the evolution of viruses. There's nothing in any of that 20 years work that argues in favor of withholding life-saving vaccines. It's just shocking to me. He adds, there are 600,000 Americans dead so far. The vast majority of those deaths are vaccine preventable. There's not a single scenario that would argue in favor of not using vaccines to save the next 100,000. Not one scenario. What really gets me, apart from the fact that I do think this is a public health threat that people who 
are arguing against vaccinations are doing other people great harm. Apart from that, I really get concerned that this sort of disinformation or this inappropriate interpretation means that it's very difficult for us scientists to actually ask serious questions about how evolution might proceed and get a good look at it because we get this concern that our work will be taken and twisted. Those of us who are very interested in the way the evolution might go have trouble doing the work or at least talking about it because of the concern that people like Joe Rogan will twist it and use it in the wrong way. And in this instance, use it to spread misinformation about the COVID-19 vaccines that are life-saving. Not only are they safe, but they're effective. But Joe Rogan doesn't care. He just wants to push his anti-vax agenda because that's what his podcast is now. Spreading misinformation about vaccines and a virus during a public health crisis. And he also was condemning people for wearing masks. He's against the lockdowns and he's also against vaccines. So at some point, Joe Rogan has to ask himself, is he just on the side of the virus at this point? Because all of this misinformation that you're peddling is going to lead to people dying. How many people who listen to your podcast chose to not get vaccinated because of you and are going to die? Are you going to pay for the funeral expenses or the healthcare costs, Joe Rogan, with some of that $100 million that you make to spread this bullshit from that Spotify deal that you signed? Like, are you going to help the people you're actively harming right now, Joe Rogan? I don't think so. So you were correct when you said that you're a moron. So if you acknowledge that you're a moron and you're out of your league here, shut the fuck up when it comes to the virus and COVID-19 vaccines because you're spreading misinformation that is deadly, Joe Rogan. Stay in your lane. Shut the fuck up, idiot. As new daily COVID-19 cases tick up as a result of the prominence of the Delta variant, we are hearing, once again, the same tired arguments against new mask mandates, and we're especially hearing these arguments against so-called vaccine passports, which aren't necessarily a thing yet in most instances, but vaccine passports, believe it or not, aren't that controversial because those of us who actually did everything in our power to stop this virus and we got vaccinated, we should be able to resume life in a somewhat normal fashion since the virus is predominantly spreading among unvaccinated populations. So if it's the case that you need to show your vaccination to go to the gym or go to a concert, I think that we should allow that. Rather than locking down, I think that we should allow people to have some freedom if they're taking precautions to protect themselves. But we're hearing that that's bad because uh, vaccine passports lead to less freedom, contrary to popular belief. It's not like you'll get more freedom for taking action to protect yourself during a public health crisis. It's actually against freedom. It's less freedom, albeit for the people who are choosing to be reckless and irresponsible. Basically, one argument that I heard that really pissed me off is as follows. Right. You can't do what you want to do unless you do what I want you to do. I mean, Don Lemon was talking about that openly on CNN. Yeah. Don't have a vaccine? Can't go to the supermarket. Don't have a vaccine? Can't go to work. Like, It's so strange that people want to say things like that. Like, that's the thing that blows me away. Why do, you, why do people want to... Because uh, they're dumb. They're dumb. Right? They're dumb. They don't understand history. They don't understand <laughs> right. human beings. They don't understand yeah. human nature. They don't understand the history of every single country that's ever existed mm -hmm. other than the United States. Up until 1776, every fucking country that has ever existed was run by dictators. Right. All of them. This is the first one. 
where you had elected officials. This is the first experiment in self-government that actually worked, and it created the greatest superpower the world's ever known. It created the greatest cultural machine, the greatest machine of art and creativity and innovation right fucking here. And how did it do that? It did it through freedom. Because when you give people freedom, you let people do whatever the fuck they want to do, they actually find ways to succeed and grow and thrive. But as soon as you put the boots to them, as soon as you tell them, you have to do this or you can't do that. You have to listen to me. Now you have a mini dictator. You right. have one step away from a king. You have a one step closer. You're moving one step closer to dictatorship. That's what the fuck is happening. That's what's going to happen with a vaccine passport. That's what's going to happen if... They close borders. You can't enter New York City unless you have your papers. You can't go to here unless you have that. You can't get on a plane unless you do what I say. And people say, whoa, it's all about protecting people from the... Mm. No, it's not. It's not because we've shown this is a fact. Sounds like Joe Rogan just tacitly endorsed open borders. Based. Now, look, when he says that this is about freedom, his argument is very, very dim-witted. It's an elementary understanding of freedom. Freedom doesn't work that way. And of course, we want to maximize, we want to maximize freedom to the highest extent that we possibly can. But under every single circumstance, no matter how you slice it and dice it, freedom is not absolute. We can live in the freest society imaginable, but there's still going to be some restrictions on what others view as freedom. For example, I don't have the freedom to murder anyone who I don't like. Does that mean that my freedom has been eroded? Technically, yes. Thankfully, I don't want to murder anyone, but I mean, I don't have the freedom to murder anyone or commit mass murder. That's not necessarily a bad thing, and I'd argue that society is better off because we've restricted the freedom of others to commit murder. And you don't even have to be that extreme when we talk about the concept of freedom. I don't have the freedom to go out in public naked. Joe Rogan doesn't have the freedom to hang brain on the subway. Freedoms are restricted if it is better for the public good. So if we restrict freedom in some instances, then we aren't necessarily just inherently bad and authoritarian. Joe Rogan is correct to point out that we have lost freedoms in the United States. Civil liberties are being eroded thanks to things like the Patriot Act, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that every single time the government imposes some new measure that restricts freedom to a degree, especially during times of crisis, it's inherently bad. Like, I get big government bad, but we have to think in a little bit more of a nuanced way. And someone who doesn't really consider himself a political YouTuber, uh, Ethan Klein of H3 Podcast, he had like the perfect response to this elementary understanding of freedom. He says on Twitter, has any conservative explained why masks and vaccines are tyrannical but not seatbelts, school vaccine mandates, driving license, gun ownership license, having to wear clothing in public, not being able to buy loud music at 3am, not being able to defecate in public, etc.? Exactly. Some restrictions on freedoms we just accept because, you know, they're embedded culturally. We, we don't question them because we grew up with them. Seatbelts is an example. Nobody thinks that they're losing freedom because they're not allowed to own a tank or a nuclear weapon personally. There are things that we just accept because socially that's just the way that it is. So the issue here isn't necessarily a loss of freedom, but the issue is the social cost, right? that come with vaccine passports. And that's really what Joe Rogan is angry at, I think. And, you know, this is only speculation. I can't read his mind. But he doesn't want to be inconvenienced. He wants to be able to travel 
without showing proof of vaccination. He wants to be able to go to the gym without showing proof of vaccination because in the event he was turned away, he'd be really embarrassed and he wants to be able to engage in normal activities that human beings engage in. I don't blame him. But the issue is that we're living through a pandemic. It's a public health crisis that killed over 600,000 Americans. So during times like this, we don't get to do everything that we want to do, right? We don't get to throw massive, massive parties indoors if we want to be safe. We don't get to go through grocery stores with mask mandates and act like babies if they ask that we put on a mask. We don't get to do a lot of things because we're all having to make sacrifices because of this pandemic. Now, I, for one, have been making as much sacrifices as I can possibly make. Like, all throughout the pandemic, I didn't go anywhere. I wouldn't even go to the grocery store. I'd have, you know, curbside pickup ready. But finally, when I was vaccinated, I was able to be a little bit more free. So now it's time for the unvaccinated people and the anti-maskers like Joe Rogan. Now it's time for them to deal with the costs of a public health crisis. Now it's time for them to do their part because everyone else, like myself, we did our part. We stood home, right? We didn't go anywhere. We didn't see family and friends for more than a year. Lots of us took it seriously. And so now that we have a vaccine that is highly effective and safe, we should be allowed the freedom that we didn't have to go to restaurants, dine indoors by showing proof of vaccination. It's not like this is something that is going to be permanent. Like uh, Joe Rogan speculates that if you allow vaccine passports, you know, once the government assumes this role and, you know, they, they dictate where you can and can't go, you're never going to get that power back, except he fundamentally misunderstands the way that the economy and more importantly, capitalism works. Okay. This is going to be very, very inconvenient for businesses. Uh, if people reinstate mask mandates, if vaccine passports are required by certain businesses, that's going to hurt business. So it's not going to be a permanent measure. I guarantee it. It's a temporary thing that will allow people who have been vaccinated, who did everything that they need to do to actually have some sense of freedom before, you know, another mutation inevitably comes along that, uh, you know, completely uh, is resistant to the vaccines. Like, vaccine passports at a time like this, during a public health crisis, they enhance freedom. They enhance freedom. If we want to be safe when we go out in public. But I mean, this, this freedom argument, like in America, when we, when we use freedom, when we invoke that word, it's usually like nothing more than petulance, right? Like look at, think about all of those, uh, the Karens who refuse to wear masks in stores. They'd cite freedom. I thought I lived in a free country. Actually, um, that doesn't give you permission to act like a fuckwad in public. That doesn't give you permission to treat others like shit because you believe that your freedom is being violated. I mean, it, Americans are the biggest babies ever. Like, it's not like there isn't anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers in other countries, but there's a level of petulance in the United States that we just don't see. It's, it's not as common in other countries. At least I haven't seen it. Perhaps I'm ignorant. But it's just this whole freedom argument. I mean, it's, it, if you don't want your freedom to be restricted because of vaccine passports, you could just get the vaccine. Go get the vaccine. It's safe. It's effective. It's widely available. And guess what? It's free. So get the vaccine and um, then you don't have to worry about vaccine passports and you can shut the fuck up and maybe we can all move on at some point. But people like Joe Rogan, any 
you know, a precaution that society takes to mitigate the spread of this highly contagious, deadly disease is bad. Like he made fun of people saying that men who wear masks in their cars are effeminate. He, you know, uh, shamed uh, any states that had lockdowns. He's anti-vax, going out of his way to spread misinformation about vaccines. And he talks about politics and this issue all the time. But yet someone like Ethan Klein, who doesn't consider himself very politically active, is able to just easily dismantle his dumb freedom argument. And that really should say something about how flawed conservative logic is if someone who is largely apolitical who doesn't follow politics regularly is e able to just so easily you know swat aside that idiotic freedom argument it's not freedom we don't have absolute freedom if we did we can walk through the stores fucking naked and shit like that it's just th this is stupid and people like joe rogan they're, they're, they're not capable of nuance it's just service level elementary understanding of politics and it's all about like what makes them feel good and, and that's that's that. But unfortunately, people like him are very persuasive, more so than individuals who are actually smart, like Ethan Klein, who take the virus seriously. So, I, I mean, there's nothing left to say. I'm rambling at this point, but I'm so sick of COVID idiots like, uh, you know, uh, Joe Rogan, who has every single, you know, uh, negative thing to say about any precaution, you know, uh, intended on mitigating the spread of the virus like he's always going to you know speak out against it because he just he doesn't care about the virus and he wants everyone else to care as little about COVID-19 as he does and uh that's just not gonna be gonna be the case people with brains can see that this is very serious and we need to act accordingly to meet the seriousness of this moment so we've reached a stage in the pandemic to where people are now going in grocery stores and licking things to disprove the severity of the pandemic. I'm not necessarily sure like what stage of the pandemic this is, you know, when it comes to the totality of the pandemic. I'm hoping that this is like the latest stage of the pandemic because by now I feel like I've seen everything that I can possibly see. I feel like humanity has proven to me that it's not possible that they can be any dumber than they've shown throughout this time. But nonetheless, if you haven't seen this, uh, I'm forcing you to watch it since I had to see it as well. Enjoy. That was Jody Meshchuk. She is a mom blogger and she thought it was a good idea to film herself with her children licking things throughout the grocery store, handles, the cart, and then upload that to Instagram. No, it's not like she was being blackmailed and somebody forced her to do this. This is a grown woman who thought it would be a good idea to film herself doing this and then show the world that she did this i just folks I, I don't know what to say i mean is de-evolution a real thing like are we actually going backwards in evolution because you'd think that human beings would get smarter with time especially now that we have the internet and virtually you know unlimited information at our fingertips you'd think we'd be smarter than ever but we're dumber than ever or perhaps now we're just seeing the stupidity because of the internet but i mean this is some really really idiocracy level bullshit and watching it just makes me lose that much more hope in humanity and yes that one individual can cause me to lose even more faith in my fellow human beings now this individual has 
a blog, and on said blog, she posts conspiracy theories about how vaccines cause autism. But not only that, she takes it a step further and claims that she actually helped her son, quote, recover from autism that she claims he got because he was vaccinated. <sighs> yeah. I mean, there's not really much left to say about the situation. Um, part of me thinks that, like, this isn't going to be the dumbest thing that we see throughout the pandemic. Like, I, I want to think that this is peak stupidity and nobody is going to do anything worse than this. But I mean, like, I I'm sure we're going to see somebody like shit himself and then eat the feces. I mean, I, I don't even know why I'm giving them ideas at this point. But nonetheless, we now have uh, vloggers or bloggers, whatever they call themselves, going around licking things in a grocery store amid a worldwide pandemic. Also, they can prove how um, how brave they are, I guess. But yet, I'm sure if you told her to get the vaccinations, then she wouldn't be so brave, right? If you told her to take the COVID-19 vaccine, she wouldn't be so brave. But yet, she'll go around a grocery store and lick the handles of things. It's just, I don't know what else to say, folks. This is, uh, it's perplexing, to say the least, and demoralizing. <laughs> So this is really interesting to me. Apparently, comedian Bill Burr took some shots at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who, as you know, has been terrible throughout the course of the pandemic, doing everything in his power to help the virus spread, banning mask mandates from schools, threatening to withhold funding from school districts that choose to implement mask mandates. I mean, he's just been a nightmare. Well, thankfully, Bill Burr, someone who is very popular, chose to make fun of him for all of his stupidity. So according to Lee Moran of HuffPost, comedian Bill Burr tore into Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on his podcast, slamming the Republican for banning mask mandates as his state becomes the epicenter of the highly transmissible Delta variant of COVID-19. DeSantis, whoever this guy is, and they have the most grumpiest looking photo ever. This guy is starting to build stature in 2024, and he says he disagrees on mask mandates. Burr began the latest episode of his Monday morning podcast show referencing DeSantis's positioning as a potential presidential candidate. The amount of people who not only don't even own a microscope or even have a pair of scrubs, you know, unless they went to some Halloween party, who are literally questioning doctors, it's just, at this point, it's just hilarious, Burr said in the program released Monday. These fucking piece of shit politicians, he added, he knows that that's what his fan base wants him to do, so that's what the fuck he's gonna do. Unbelievable. DeSantis, a Donald Trump apologists issued an executive order banning schools from mandating the use of masks to curb the spread of COVID-19. He also banned cruise ships from requiring passenger proof of vaccination, but a judge blocked that order. So I'm not necessarily sure how savvy Bill Burr is, but someone who is seemingly apolitical, like if he can see through Ron DeSantis and his whole shtick, then truly anyone should be able to see through it, right? He's doing all of these things that are reckless as governor because he wants to run for president. He's throwing his own constituents in Florida under the bus because he thinks that in 2024 or 2028, this is going to make him look better to the Republican Party's insane base, many of which probably don't even think that COVID-19 is a real thing. So it's really important that... We get back to a time where comedians are making fun of politicians again, 
Like, that would be really nice to see individuals, uh, you know, come out and condemn this stupidity. But I, I think that a lot of these comedians, I don't know what it is that made them so bad. Maybe I just like my sense of humor as dead. I find them insufferable. Although I will say that Bill Burr is probably the, the least insufferable of all comedians. In fact, I tend to enjoy him sometimes. Um, but I mean, like, we desperately need another George Carlin in this moment in 2021 America. And, you know, hopefully Bill Burr will step up to the occasion and be the individual who will fill that vacuum left open or the void, I should say, left open by, you know, George Carlin. But it's important that we shame these types of politicians who are absolutely just loathsome, who don't care how many people their policies are killing, how shameless they look. They will do anything. They will kill as many people as they need to if they believe that's going to advance their political careers. And it's not just Ron DeSantis. This isn't just a Republican-only thing. Democrats are like this as well, albeit to a lesser extent, and they're less, you know, less overt in their extremism. But I mean, Republicans as of late, I, I mean, even as much as I hate the Democratic Party, some of them are like one step away from shitting themselves in public. Like, when you have individuals like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert rise to prominence and become popular within the ranks of the GOP, even if, you know, she lost her committee assignments, the base and her constituents love her. Like, how can you not make fun of this if you're a comedian? Like, this is this is a perfect opportunity for you to make fun of these ghouls. Like, it, the jokes write themselves. So, you know, who knows? But I love this, and I hope to see more of this from comedians. We absolutely should normalize shitting on uh, these insane politicians. In a 69 to 30 vote, nice, the Senate has actually passed its bipartisan infrastructure legislation. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that most of my viewers have already read through all 2,700 pages of this legislation, but for the few of you who haven't yet, don't worry, I've got you covered, because here is what is in the bill. This is according to Heather Long of the Washington Post. It includes $110 billion for roads and bridges, $66 billion for rail, $65 billion for power grid and broadband, $55 billion for water, including replacing lead pipes, $39 billion for public transit, $25 billion for airports, $21 billion for pollution cleanup, $17 billion for ports, and $7.5 billion for electric vehicle charge stations. Now, a lot of this sounds great at face value, but I have to wonder if 30 Republicans voted for this, including all of the corporate Democrats and far-right Democrats, uh, there's got to be something off about this, right? What's the catch? Well, the catch, as Anna Kasparian explains, is that the bipartisan infrastructure bill, private privatizes public infrastructure in section titled asset concessions. When infrastructure is privatized, corporations implement tolls and fees. Bill claims they can't charge tolls on people making $400,000 per year or less, but there's no enforcement mechanism. So there you have it. This is indeed a giveaway to corporate America and not just any ghouls from corporate America, some of the worst ghouls in corporate America who are literally ruining the environment. Because as The Intercept's Aileen Brown reported on August 3rd, bipartisan infrastructure bill includes $25 billion in potential new subsidies for fossil fuels. And she explains the Senate's new bipartisan infrastructure bill is being sold as a down payment on addressing the climate crisis, but environmental advocates and academics are warning the proposed spending bill is full of new fossil fuel fuel industry subsidies masked as climate 
solutions. Yeah. Now, in spite of the Biden administration's attempt to greenwash this legislation and make it seem as if it's an adequate solution to, you know, addressing climate change, progressive lawmakers are not falling for it. So, Jamal Bowman said in a statement that the infrastructure bill does not adequately fund measures to address the climate emergency, not even close, he said. Though it includes important investments in hard infrastructure like our roads and bridges, it vastly underfunds public transit, electric vehicle, and grid infrastructure. And he's absolutely correct about that. Now, prior to this bill getting voted on in the Senate, Congressman Ro Khanna tweeted this out. The UN's climate change report confirms we've already warmed the globe and must act immediately to prevent it from worsening. Global warming is causing heat waves, stronger storms, flooding, and droughts. The stakes are clear for the infrastructure bill. No climate, no deal. Now, what he's referring to with that last sentence is the progressive pledge to not vote for any infrastructure bill unless the Senate also takes up a reconciliation package. Now, that package is going to include all of the things that progressives want that was left out of the infrastructure proposal. And Cory Bush hinted at this yesterday as well. Today's IPCC report makes clear what we already know. The bipartisan infrastructure deal fails to address the urgency of the climate crisis. The investments we make through reconciliation must be bold and ambitious and move us closer to a Green New Deal. Now, in terms of what's in said reconciliation bill that's supposed to be passed alongside the infrastructure proposal, well, um, it is quite a bit of really, really good things that make voting for the infrastructure bill, in my opinion, worthwhile if they do indeed get all of this. So this is according to Bernie Sanders, as reported by Jeff Stein of the Washington Post. It includes major funding for climate change and clean energy initiatives. On top of that, it includes universal pre-K, paid family and medical leave, a Medicare expansion that includes dental, hearing, and vision, and much much more. So all of this would be incredible if it actually passes. But it all depends on the Senate's next move, because if they don't actually approve this reconciliation proposal, then the House is already stating, and they've said it once, they're saying it again, we're not going to support this. If you deny us this, all these great things in the reconciliation proposal, we're going to deny you that shiny new infrastructure deal that you just passed that I'm sure you desperately want to, you know, uh, brag to your constituents about. So as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams explains, in a letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, three top CPC members led by caucus chair Pramila Jayapal wrote that their fellow progressive lawmakers were specifically asked whether they would commit to withholding a yes vote on the bipartisan partisan infrastructure deal until the Senate has passed budget reconciliation legislation deemed acceptable by the Congressional Progressive Caucus. A majority of our respondents affirmed that they would withhold their votes in support of the bipartisan legislation in the House of Representatives until the Senate adopted a robust reconciliation package, reads the letter, which was also signed by Representatives Katie Porter and Ilhan Omar. So in essence, progressives in the House are saying, if you don't deliver us that reconciliation package that Bernie Sanders worked really hard on to make as as good as it possibly can be as robust as it possibly can be you're not going to get that infrastructure proposal we're not going to vote on it we will withhold our votes we will torpedo that infrastructure deal that corporate democrats and you know uh Republicans desperately want to use to, you know, uh, sell to their constituents as to why they should be reelected. And the House Congressional Progressive Caucus also tweeted about this, saying CPC members won't support a bipartisan bill without a bold reconciliation bill to advance our priorities. And that's really important. So I'm really proud of congressional progressives for standing strong and remaining firm here. That infrastructure bill, it is not worth a vote 
if they don't get that reconciliation proposal. Now, it's tricky because in the Senate, all 50 Democrats have to vote for that reconciliation proposal, and then Vice President Kamala Harris will be the tie-breaking vote. But if any Democrat withholds their vote from that re- reconciliation package, it all is torpedoed. If Kirsten Sinema or Joe Manchin choose to not support that reconciliation package that budget chair Bernie Sanders uh, worked on, then everything goes up in flames. And what I would suspect, uh, you know, is going to be the argument is if Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema don't support the reconciliation bill and progressives inevitably withhold votes on the infrastructure proposal in the house well there's going to be this effort by the mainstream media and corporate wing of the democratic party to blame progressives but no the details were agreed upon long in advance no climate no deal so you can take all of the climate related things out of the infrastructure package so long as we get it in the reconciliation proposal that's fine. We'll vote for the infrastructure bill. But if we don't get that reconciliation package, you don't get your infrastructure deal. That's what progressives are saying. And I'm really glad that they are committed to torpedoing this bill if they don't get what they want, because they got screwed out of the negotiating process in favor of allowing, you know, corporate Democrats and so-called moderate Republicans to essentially take everything that they wanted to out of the infrastructure proposal. So it's important that progressives, uh, you know, torpedo this if, you know, they don't get that reconciliation package. So, you know, I'll keep you updated on this, but um, we'll see whether or not everything is going to work out and we get both the infrastructure deal and the reconciliation package. It's yet to be seen, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to remain cautiously optimistic, but kind of leaning more towards pessimism and cynicism than optimism, because I don't think that corporate Democrats are going to allow a reconciliation package of that size to go through easily. It's possible, or even very likely, that I'm talking about this because I'm I'm still salty. I mean, look, I, I'm I'm a petty person, and I have to admit, I absolutely hate Barack Obama. I don't just hate him because he failed to live up to the promises that he ran on as president, and he made me like perpetually jaded. Like I believed in him, and he betrayed me as one of his supporters. I'm not just salty because of that. I'm salty because. You know, after he left the White House, he's still influencing politics, specifically the Democratic Party, in a very negative way. I mean, he intervened in 2020 to get all of the moderates to drop out and coalesce behind Joe Biden. He then later influenced Bernie Sanders to drop out, reportedly. On top of that, you know, in 2020, when we could have seen a real social movement, when NBA players were threatening to strike... After Jacob Blake was shot by a police officer seven times, it was Barack Obama who intervened and convinced them to play. So Barack Obama is a genuinely bad person. And when he's not destroying movements, well, you know, then he is disregarding COVID protocols for his stupid birthday party that nobody really should care about. But apparently, you know, what he's doing is trying to give fuel to the Republicans who claim that the virus isn't that serious And, you know, all of these mask measures and lockdown protocols, this is all just a ploy by liberal elites to, you know, gain more control over you. I mean, by holding a gigantic birthday party in the middle of a pandemic, it's 
you know, it's a little bit tone deaf. Like, it's not the biggest issue ever, and I don't want to make it seem as if, like, Barack Obama doing this is the worst thing ever. There are bigger issues to talk about, but because I'm a petty bitch, I'm going to talk about this issue. And, you know, all of these feelings that I feel about Obama was articulated beautifully in an op-ed by Jacobin writer Liza Featherstone, who writes, Barack Obama has been one of the worst ex-presidents ever. Since his retirement from politics, Barack Obama has displayed an astonishing lack of regard for the public good. Instead of serving his fellow human beings, he has mainly devoted himself to a rigorous program of conspicuous self-celebration. And we'll read the article, but I just wanted to give you the headline because it's it's so good. And, and basically, Liza says everything that I've been thinking. Um, you know, it's not just that Obama has caused measurable harm throughout the globe. I mean, this individual is still intervening in Democratic Party politics to stop young people from actually being victorious in any way possible. Even if it's not through electoral politics, he stops NBA players from doing something that would have been really meaningful because they respect Barack Obama. So we have to normalize shitting on Barack Obama. That's one reason why I'm talking about this. And two, I can't stand Barack Obama because, again, I'm, I'm betrayed. I'm like a scorned lover. You uh, break my heart, then I will never let you live it down. I will always shit on you. So we're going to get to what Liza writes because I think she makes some really good points. She writes, all summer, millions of Americans this year worried about being evicted from their homes, catching the Delta variant, persuading recalcitrant loved ones to get vaccinated, or whether a COVID resurgence might keep schools closed in the fall. Former President Barack Obama was apparently loftily unbothered by any of these plebeian concerns. The distinguished memoirist was too busy planning a ginormous 60th birthday party for himself on his vast and vulgar market this vineyard estate, a sprawling 6,892-foot tumor on a beautifully spare coastal landscape, which the Obamas bought in 2019 for $11.75 million. The 475 guests were to include George Clooney and Oprah Winfrey. Even people close to him argued for weeks that as the White House was urging caution given the recent COVID resurgence, the optics of the shindig were not good. Last week, he appeared for a moment to be conceding to internal Democratic Party pressure by disinviting most of the guests limiting the celebration to family and close friends, but that soon turned out to be some kind of head fake. While Obama's party might not have caused a deadly outbreak, it was outdoors and the Obamas were requiring guests to be vaccinated. The former president's birthday bash showed, at a minimum, a cavalier insensitivity to the fears and needs of his neighbors, as well as a general indifference to the political fortunes of his fellow Democrats and the sufferings of Americans. But the kerfuffle shouldn't surprise close observers of Obama's ex-presidency, which has been strikingly bereft of public spirit Ex-presidents would be nothing without the trust the public once placed in them by electing them to the presidency in the first place. After the presidency, all their earning power and cultural influence stems from the fact that people once voted for them. Obama has not only largely opted out of using his high profile to serve the public interest, but he's also chosen insultingly to flout it. It's long past time to end the cult of hero worship around this narcissistic plutocrat. And I've just got to take a moment to give a little bit of a slow clap. Because that was beautifully put, Liza. Beautifully put. Or is it Lisa? No, it's Liza. That was a phenomenal article. And I'll link you to it down below if you're watching this on YouTube. So you can read the whole thing because we just read a little bit of it. But I think the points that she's making, it's great. Like this, first and foremost, it is tone deaf. But second of all, like you're really, really forcing a lot of young people out of politics if this is what they have to expect i mean so many millennials 
put their hopes and dreams into Obama, and now he's just like ambivalent, throwing these giant shindigs in the middle of a pandemic at his mansion. And it's gross. Like, it goes to show you that politicians, they never cared about you. They care about, you know, themselves. And, you know, what's worse is that, you know, Obama isn't just displaying his callousness here, but he's actively disempowering the people who got him in power, the millennials that voted him into power. He fucked them over in 2020 by getting all of the moderate Democrats to drop out and endorse Joe Biden. I don't know that Bernie Sanders would have won if that didn't happen, right? But would we have had a better chance if Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg remained in the race to take votes away from Joe Biden? Yeah, absolutely. So the fact that Obama doesn't really get involved in politics unless it's to preserve his legacy, it's just, it's so disgusting. And the hatred that I have for Obama continues to grow as he does things like this, as he throws these giant birthday parties. Who gives a fuck if you're turning 60? Nobody cares. My, I mean, I had my birthday this year a couple of weeks ago. You want to know what I did? Jack fucking shit. Who cares? Once you're past 21, your birthday doesn't matter. Sorry to break it to you. 50 Cent said it first. You know, we don't give a fuck if it's your birthday. We don't. Nobody cares. Uh, but I mean, there's this level of hero worship surrounding Obama that is just truly, truly bad because Obama should be held accountable right now that he's no longer in office. I mean, he should have been held accountable while he was in office, but this individual committed war crimes. If you don't want to believe that, talk to the people in Pakistan, in Yemen or Somalia, who are still suffering from the PTSD that his dro drones gave them. Talk to any of those folks. But honestly, like this, this whole shindig that he threw for his birthday, it rubbed me the wrong way. And when I see podcast hosts like Joe Rogan, who always misinform his viewers about COVID-19 and explains why the lockdowns are bad. When he cites examples like this, oh, well, see, Obama doesn't seem to care about COVID-19, so it must just be about liberal elites trying to get control. Like, it's hard to argue against that because, yes, of course, these people who are leaders should be leading by example, including Barack Obama, who's out of office. So, you know, he, he uh, is hurting Democrats who are actually trying to do good, he is making millennials that much more jaded and, you know, uh, by disempowering them and making them want to tune out of electoral politics altogether, which emboldens the Republicans. I think that, like, the world would be better off if Obama just, like, hid away in his mansion and didn't come out of his mansion. Like, if he truly cared about future generations and millennials, he would just stay in his mansion and shut the fuck up. But we know that, you know, he's, he's not going to do that because he loves the spotlight. He loves the attention. So... Yeah, uh, Barack Obama is a piece of shit, but most of my viewers know that already. I think it's just a matter of convincing the normie Democrats now that Barack Obama isn't the savior that they once thought he was, but this is going to be a work in progress because they still idolize Barack Obama. Hell, they still idolize Hillary Clinton to a, to a, you know, a degree, albeit to a lesser extent, but the Democratic Party's got to find some new heroes, and this motherfucker isn't one of them. The best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing. And therefore, that's what I'll do. Because I work for you. And doing the right thing is doing the right thing for you. Because as we say, it's not about me. It's about we. Kathy Hochul, my lieutenant governor, is smart and confident. This transition must be seamless. 
I'm so sorry that you had to see that. But um, yeah, uh, by the way, that Randy Rainbow video is still up. I mean, Randy, brother, what are we doing? Delete that. It very clearly did not age well. And I get that you probably want to leave it up because you spent so much time working on it. And, you know, in your opinion, this is like art. So even if it didn't age well, you, you're still proud of your work. It just cut your losses and delete it. Like, let this be a lesson to you. Stop idolizing politicians, especially pro-corporate Democrats who essentially govern as mafia bosses. Uh, but having said that, though, the reason why I'm talking about Andrew Cuomo again is because, surprisingly, he resigned. Now, I'm not necessarily sure what it was that ultimately led to him finally realizing that he needs to resign, but I think that this interview with his accuser Maybe this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Either way, it's really nice to see government officials face at least some accountability, but him just simply resigning isn't enough. Now he needs to be prosecuted, not just for his behavior as governor and treatment of women, but because he has the blood of thousands of older folks on his hands. And thankfully, Assemblyman Ron Kim recommitted to taking on Andrew Cuomo with regard to the nursing home debacle. He says, after Cuomo goes down for sexual harassment, I'll still be here to hold him accountable for 15,000 deaths. And he adds, re-upping my commitment. So this is good. This is what I really want to see. And, you know, I don't think people truly understand how insane it is that during a pandemic, this governor, as he was allowing old people in nursing homes to die, he wrote a book about how to handle handle the pandemic like a good leader while the pandemic was still going on. I mean, it's, it's just insanity. And it's not just that he let thousands of seniors in his state die. He tried to cover it up. So as Michael Gold and Ed Shanahan of the New York Times explains, beginning last spring, Mr. Cuomo was criticized over a state requirement that forced nursing homes to take back residents who had been hospitalized with COVID-19 once they recovered. Critics said the policy had increased the number of virus-related deaths among nursing home residents. At the time, Mr. Cuomo and his aides dismissed the outcry as politically motivated, and in July, the state health department released a report that found the policy was not responsible for an increase. The report did, however, raise questions in some quarters about how the state was reporting deaths. In January, New York's attorney general said the administration had undercounted nursing home deaths by several thousand. Mr. Cuomo later acknowledged as much, blaming the lower figure on fears that the Trump administration would use the data as a political weapon. The suggestion that the actual death count had been covered up intensified criticism of Mr. Cuomo, including from his allies in state government. The scandal deepened after reports that the governor's aides had altered the July report to hide the true figure. In April, the New York Times reported that Mr. Cuomo's aides had gone to far greater lengths than previously known to obscure the death toll, reportedly overruling state health officials over a span of at least five months. Now, the reason why I'm talking about this is not to distract you from the sexual assault and sexual harassment stories because those survivors telling their stories is really important and people need to pay attention to what they have to say. But I'm talking about this because oftentimes, once a government official resigns, people think that they've been sufficiently held accountable when that's not actually the case. And I just really want to remind everyone that Andrew Cuomo allowed thousands of people to die, lives that will never come back. They're gone forever. And he did all of this while patting himself on the back, writing a book about how to deal with the pandemic as a good leader. So, it's not enough that he, you know, is resigning. He needs to be prosecuted. He needs to go to jail. 
because this individual isn't just a corrupt corporate Democrat. What he did amounts to criminal negligence. And if he's not held accountable, then other governors around the country also won't be held accountable. So this isn't about Democrat versus Republican. If you think that individuals like Ron DeSantis, for example, have bungled the pandemic and have done actions that are comparable to criminal negligence and worse possibly, then you also have to hold Democrats accountable as well. And what Andrew Cuomo did is, in my opinion, worthy of criminal prosecution, and I hope that he's actually going to be prosecuted for it. And I'll leave that there. He's down, but, um, you know, unfortunately, the monstrosity that is Randy Rainbow's Cuomo sexual video is still up. So maybe we can get him to take that down, and that'll be like the next victory in the Andrew Cuomo saga. I don't know. Well, that's all that I have for you. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the program, as usual, we're not going to end the show without thanking all of our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which who help us not just to survive, but thrive as well. You all are absolutely just incredible. If you want more of the Humanist Report every single Wednesday, you can watch me live at 6 p.m. PST on our YouTube channel and tune into Dystopian Times. Uh, also, I'm live on Twitch Thursdays at 7 p.m. PST. Uh, upon the season finale of Dystopian Times, I might switch up the schedule. Maybe I'll do like the Twitch streams on Wednesdays. I'm not sure yet. But either way, folks, uh, I'll be here and uh, be talking about these very depressing, uh, you know, uh, disheartening stories every single week. So, uh, Hopefully you'll be here too to suffer with me. <laughs> Anyways, I'll see you all next week. My name is Mike Figueredo. This has been The Humanist Report. Take care, everyone.